everyone, welcome to the I Dare You podcast. This podcast is all about you and helping you reach the big goals that you have in your life. And what next steps do you want to take to get there? I'm your host, Darren Johnson. Welcome to episode 48. This is not just any normal episode. Uh, This is the first episode of a brand new year. Doesn't it feel good? This is another chance for us to get things right. Oh, quick reminder, before we do anything else, make sure you are subscribing to this podcast so you do not miss an episode. And also follow us on Instagram at I Dare You Pod. And the fact that you tuned in tells me that you may, you may have something in mind for yourself. One year from now, what do you want your life to look like? And to help all of us think through where we want to take things, I am so excited for our guest. He is Alan Stein Jr. Many of you know Alan, but if you don't, Alan Stein Jr. is an acclaimed basketball performance coach who has translated that into the world of business. He helps improve organizational performance, uh, helps leaders become better leaders, coaches high performers in all industries about how to have winning mindsets and rituals and routines. Now, currently, he's doing corporate keynote programs and workshops, a powerful storyteller, as you'll hear in just a moment. He helps organizations and leaders create high-performing cultures. Companies you've heard of, American Express, Pepsi, Under Armour, Starbucks, Orange Theory, and numerous college athletic programs, including Penn State football and UConn men's basketball. Now, Allen spent 15 years working with the highest-performing athletes on the planet, including NBA superstars like Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, and Kobe Bryant. The cool thing is he takes that knowledge and reveals how leaders and teams can utilize these same approaches in business that elite athletes use to perform at a world-class level. You know, one of the things I enjoyed most about this interview is that we can learn so much by looking at adjacent categories. Uh, We can learn about leadership by studying other leaders in business, for sure. But we can also learn about leadership by studying other world-class performers in other industries. And that's what Alan brings to the table in his experience as a basketball performance coach. It's so much fun to talk this through, and I can't wait for you to hear this interview. So no matter where you find yourself as you come into this brand new year, you could be in momentum and things are going so well for you. You're performing at a high level and you know it. Or maybe it hasn't been that type of a year. Maybe you're not feeling like you're performing at the level you need to perform in different areas of your life. But we are now shifting gears. We are hitting the reset button and we are looking at this brand new year with a whole lot of optimism. You are in control of what happens next. And Alan Stein Jr. is the perfect guest to help us get there. So now everyone, he's ready. I'm ready. I hope you are too. Here everyone is Alan Stein Jr. Alan, welcome to the I Dare You podcast. It is really good having you here. Oh, I'm so excited to be with you. I've been looking forward to this since we put it on the calendar. So Alan, uh, take us back a bit. Of all the things you could do with your life, how did you land where you currently land? How did you, how did you get here? So basketball was my first identifiable passion, and I fell in love with the game at five years old. And I'm so grateful that here four decades later, basketball is still a major pillar of my life. And I I spent the first portion of my life as a very dedicated basketball player, Uh, was able to play all the way up through the college level. I played at Elon University down in North Carolina in the mid-90s. And while I was at Elon, I started to develop an equal love for strength and conditioning and nutrition and fitness and mindset, uh, what we now call performance training. So when I graduated from Elon in the late 90s, I figured what could be better than combining my original love of basketball with this newfound love of performance training, and I became a basketball performance coach. And uh, I did that for almost 20 years um, and had a chance uh, to, to work with some pretty remarkable players 
Uh, I chose to specialize uh, in the youth and high school age level because that's where I felt I could have the biggest impact on them off of the court. And being a role model to those players was something that was very important to me. But because I was able to work with some really incredible high school level players, um, Kevin Durant being the most notable, wow. that that earned me an opportunity to work some events for Nike and Jordan Brand and USA Basketball. And, and then I got a peek behind the curtain at what guys like Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, Steve Nash, you know, the best of the best were doing. And um, five years ago, I decided to take all of these lessons and principles and strategies that I had learned through the game and had learned through these elite level players and I decided to make the leap over to the current iteration of what I'm doing, which is as a keynote speaker and author. And as you said so brilliantly in the intro, uh, I teach folks in the business world now, uh, both individually and organizationally, how to utilize those principles and, and how to utilize the mindsets and the rituals and the routines and the habits and the disciplines that elite athletes use and show them how to apply them to their own lives into their own businesses. And I'm so grateful yeah. to do what I do. I love what I do and, and certainly love opportunities like this to, to share with others. That's great. Kevin Durant in high school. I can't even imagine. Was it just, what was that like? Let me ask you the question. You know, it was so interesting because when I, I first met Kevin, you know, he was uh, incredibly shy, very reserved. He was a, a kid of very few words, you know, but there were a few things that were really obvious uh, having spent a little time with him initially. Uh, one, he absolutely loved the game of basketball. I mean, that was his passion. That was his fire. There's nothing in the world he would have rather been doing than, than on the court working on his game. Um, Kevin was also a very fundamentally sound player. You know, even at 15 years old, you know, he, he had pristine footwork and shooting mechanics. You know, he, he certainly had the tools. Um, Kevin also had a very high basketball IQ. You know, even at that young age, he understood the game on a cerebral level that would rival many coaches. And uh, the one that we like to joke about even to this day, you know, Kevin was very slight of frame back then. I mean, he, you know, he's, he's fairly thin now, even in the NBA, but he was, he was even more slight of frame back in high school. So it was kind of obvious to me that the, the only thing that could prevent this young man from playing the game at a really high level would be lack of strength and power, or if he were to get injured or hurt from his body being too frail. So, you know, as a performance coach, that was music to my ears. I mean, here you've got somebody that's got passion, they've got grit, they've got desire, they've got heart, they've got the tools to be a great player. And the only thing they're missing is what my expertise was in, which was helping him get stronger and improve his explosiveness. So, you know, it was kind of the perfect marriage uh, right from the get-go. And, you know, I, I certainly like to believe that that over time, Kevin taught me every bit as much as I'd like to believe I taught him just in, in the way he approached the game, his mindset, his discipline. Uh, and I'm very thankful here, you know, well over a decade later to still call him a friend. Yeah. You know, basketball is a beautiful game, isn't it? I know right now World Cup is underway. That's also a beautiful game. It is. But look, um, what is there about basketball for you? And by the way, just, you know, my background, I didn't play college ball. I played high school and I'm always good for about six points a game couple of rebounds, <laughs> but I love the game. I love the, the team aspect of it. So I'm to you, you, this is your life. What is there about this game? Well, you know, what's interesting. I think that's such a beautiful question. I didn't come to this realization until much later in life when I looked back, you know, with the gift of hindsight, but to many people's surprise, given that I am a keynote speaker and a coach, um, I'm heavily introverted and I very much identify <laughs> as being an introvert. I, I love people. Uh, I love being around people. I'm not antisocial by any means, 
but being around people and speaking actually exhausts me. And really? the way that I refill and refill my tank is through solitude, is through alone time, uh, is through stillness. And looking back, I think one of my major attractions to the game of basketball was it's one of the very few team sports that you can work on the primary skill sets, primarily shooting and ball handling by yourself. You know, whether you're soccer and football and baseball, it's helpful to have a teammate, you know, someone to throw and catch with, someone to, to work on the skills with. But basketball, I could go out to the park, you know, this this is the, the 80s and 90s, so I could bring my boom box with my cassette player and I could just put on some old school hip hop, which I guess wasn't old school at the time. It was real time at the time. But I could just blast some music and I could be out at the park for hours just working on my game completely by myself. So that kind of satisfied the introverted side of me. But then I would show up to practice and I'd be able to take what I worked on and apply that to making the team better, to be a good teammate, you know. And and I think it was that combination of being able to work on the game by myself, but still make a contribution and add value to something bigger than myself um, What was a big factor. And then I also don't want to ignore the timing of it all. I mean, you know, I was born in 1976. I'm 46 years old at present. So when I'm coming into my form in middle school and in high school is really when the NBA got set on fire. You've got right, Michael right. Jordan, who's the, the global icon, you know, Magic and Larry got to pass the, the torch off to Michael Jordan oh, and, and the dream team. Like basketball just became this, this just unbelievably attractive sport all over the world. And I think that combination of, you know, Michael Jordan posters in my room, watching the NBA, and then what I mentioned about the introverted side I think it just created the perfect storm for basketball to be it for me. That is just a beautiful story. So I've got you by about 10 years. So, um, for me, I grew up with Magic and Larry. Indiana State versus Michigan State. I can remember the Final Four and the rivalry between the Celtics and the Lakers. And it was just magic. It was just a, such a special time in the NBA. And like you said, and then here comes here comes Jordan and the Dream Team. I get chills thinking about it because it was so special. And for those who are younger than we are, they just can't appreciate it. They've got their own experiences growing up. I get that. But for sure. us, that's very real. Uh, what a special time that was. So tell me this, over your years then of experience of, of working with high performers, the best of the best, what sets them apart that we can learn from? What do they do differently? I'm going to highlight what I believe are the top three. Um, the first, and this was a lesson I learned directly from Kobe Bryant the first time I met him in 2007. Um, I, I watched one of his really early morning workouts. And as a younger coach, I was really surprised at, at how basic the drills were that he was doing. You know, I expected, because it was my opinion that in 2007, Kobe was the best player in the game. And, sure. and I was kind of expecting his workout to have a lot of sizzle and a lot of flash and a lot of sexiness. And instead, he was just pounding away at the fundamentals. And that surprised me. And when I asked him about that point blank later at camp, uh, he said the reason he's the best player in the world was because he never got bored with the basics. And I, I've come to learn that that's something that unites high performers in sport and in business, in any industry, that they, they have a respect and appreciation and a reverence for the basics, that they work towards mastery of the fundamentals during the unseen hours, you know, the time when no one else is watching. Um, they're not trying to skip steps. They want to work on creating a foundation to which everything else is built by mastering the basics, getting to be an expert at the simple and, and working on the fundamentals. But a very, very important distinction to make is that just because something is basic, 
it doesn't mean it's easy. Mm. Uh, people often use those words as if they're synonyms, as if they're interchangeable, but they don't mean the same thing. Uh, I am a huge believer that what it takes to be immensely successful, incredibly fulfilled, to be a real high performer is very basic in principle. But none of that stuff is easy to execute and easy to do consistently. So it's important to understand the difference. But the first thing that unites all high performers is a respect and reverence for the fundamentals and the basics. Uh, the second thing that unites all high performers is they do a masterful job of blending confidence, which they earn by putting in the work and putting in the repetitions to earn confidence, but they blend that masterfully with humility. Um, and the humility is what keeps them open to feedback, keeps them open to being coached, keeps them open to knowing that no matter how good they are, they can still get better. They don't ever feel like they've reached their potential or they've reached their ceiling. Yeah, so they're, they're confident in their craft. You know, they're confident on the court. They're confident in the boardroom. They're confident during a sales presentation because they've earned the right to be confident but they never think they've arrived. They never think they're done. They'll never let you put them under museum glass. They, <laughs> they realize they've, they've still got improvements to make. And it's right. that blend of confidence and humility that, that keeps them sharp. And then the third one that I'd highlight would be they're crystal clear on their North star on what it is they're pursuing, you know, on, on the vision of the person they're trying to become or what they're trying to accomplish. But once they've created that vision and they've got clarity on it, they don't obsess over the, the outcome. They get very process oriented. They choose to take their eye off of the outcome and put it on the day to day, on the daily behaviors and decisions, on the habits, on the micro skills, on the mindsets that are needed to inch closer to that North Star. So while the outcomes are important to them, and for many of them, they're a very highly you know, driving force, they focus more on the process and they let the outcome just be a result of doing the work. and. Mm -hmm. Um, those three principles in particular have, have really reshaped the way I view my work, the way I approach life and my own life philosophy and perspective. You know, I, I try and, and live those things out in each of the areas of my life. I mean, certainly, you know, what brought us together is, is the professional side of things. And, you know, when it comes to being a keynote speaker, I try to, to work on those three, those three tenets. When it comes to being an author, I work on those three tenets. But it also exceeds the professional realm. You know, I'm the proud father of three children. I have 12-year-old uh, 12 twin boys and a 10-year-old daughter. And I try to use those three things as a parent, as a father. For me to be the best father I can be, I try to stick to the basics. I try to have confidence in my ability to lead my children. But I certainly know that I don't have all the answers as a parent. And I also realize that, that the, it's the process. You know, if yeah. my goal is for my children to grow up, to be happy, well-adjusted, you know, mentally healthy contributors to this world, if that's the goal, then what are the things I need to do on a day-to-day -day basis to hopefully guide them towards that? So yeah. I found this framework of these three to be really, really practical, but also immensely helpful. I think that's really, that's really a great way to explain it, especially as a dad. You're right. I mean, especially in the as a young player, but as a parent too, I mean, we don't need to be this invincible I've got all the answers type of parent. I mean, you can, but, also, but I think there's also power in being vulnerable and authentic and real and not having all the answers. It's okay. Yeah. And I even think that as a leader, I mean, certainly that is my approach as a father. And, you know, I, I let my children know 
it is it is not my job to tell them what to think. It's my job to teach them how to think and that I want them to, to, to be decision makers in their own lives. And I'm always very open to sharing with them my perspective, but I'm very open to sharing with them things I've done in my past that haven't worked out very well, some mistakes I've made, some boneheaded yeah. decisions that I've made. <laughs> and even in real time, uh, if I say or do something um, that warrants an apology, that warrants an admission that maybe that wasn't the best way I could have handled this, uh, I'm very open and vulnerable with my children. And I found that that actually increases their trust and respect for me and increases our connection. And the beautiful part is, I mean, that that's a leadership trait. That's not relegated just for parenting. You know, I believe that, you know, a, a leader of a Fortune 500 company, it's in their best interest to be appropriately vulnerable, to, to acknowledge when they don't know the answer, but they're going to find it. To admit when maybe they made a mistake, you know, on the company's behalf that that was not the right decision to make, and they own it. They don't they don't blame, complain, or make excuses. They own the fact that at the time, with the information they had, they thought this was the best direction to go. But now, you know, with further information, they realize it wasn't, and they own that. And any high powered leader I've been around in basketball or business that is appropriately vulnerable. Uh, has an attitude of extreme ownership. So they're never blaming, complaining, making excuses or deflecting. And they own the mistakes that they make, apologize when necessary, learn from them and move to the next play are usually the most trusted, mm. respected and connected leaders. Well said. Pretty uh, Easier said than done and pretty rare in today's world, don't you think? Agreed. Yeah. You know, I was invited to attend a leadership retreat uh, probably about a month ago, and a friend of mine had it, and I was invited to come in for a couple of couple hours and participate in it. I was honored to do so. But when I came to this retreat, it was up near um, Salt Lake City, Park City area, beautiful area. The whole retreat was built around this book, your book, Raise Your Game. And I, I have to tell you that I read a lot of books. I talk to a lot of people in, in doing podcasts. This is one of the best books I've ever read on leadership. You should be really proud of this. It's called Raise Your Game, High Performance Secrets from the Best of the Best. Alan, it is just jam-packed with story after story, and but teaching principles on the, uh, how to be a better player and a coach and a team member. Where did this um, idea for the book come from? What was your methodology? Well done. Oh, well, thank you so much. There's There's... No better compliment an author can receive than when someone invests their time and their money into reading your work and they find it enjoyable and beneficial. So I, I really, really appreciate your kind words. Um, so I personally have a very strong respect and reverence for authors. And I, I kind of years ago put that on my proverbial professional bucket list that I'd like to write a book, that if if there was any way, shape or form that I could put, take some of the lessons that I've learned in life and, and put them to paper and someone else would find them helpful, enjoyable, or beneficial, that would be a really cool thing to do, kind of, you know, to be of service to others. But when I made that leap from being a basketball performance coach to being a full-time professional keynote speaker, I figured that was the time to do it. And I figured that was the time because when I just started speaking, I had a lot of ideas, a lot of stories, a lot of lessons, but it was rather disorganized. So writing the book um, was also a way to help improve my speaking. And, you know, I still believe to this day, had I never even published that book, if that book that you just held up, no one in the public ever saw it, but I still took the time to write it, it would have been worth the effort because it got me crystal clear on what mm. it is that I'm teaching and how it is that I teach it. So um, I realize how fortunate that I've been in my life 
to have been around high performers like Kobe Bryant and LeBron James, to, to, to have an opportunity to build a relationship with a young Kevin Durant, to learn from some iconic coaches and players. And, and I realized that I was privy to these things, but a lot of other people weren't. And I believe in being a steward of paying them forward. Um, there's a mantra, and I don't know who said this originally, or I would give them proper attribution, but it's something I've always tried to live by. And that is a candle loses nothing by lighting another candle. I really enjoyed the process of it. I had fun writing it. I, I enjoyed the challenge of marketing it and getting it into the right hands uh, so much so that I ended up doing a follow-up book called Sustain Your Game, which came out this past April. Sustain Your Game. All right. So I've got to check that one out. That's new to me. I knew about Raise Your Game, Sustain Your Game. And the difference is um, what? Raise your game, as, as you now know, is about what we need to do to reach the proverbial mountain in whatever area of life we're trying to excel. And it's it's about the climb. But I started to learn there was a, some nuanced differences between trying to reach the proverbial mountaintop and then being able to stay there for long periods of time um, <laughs> while still having immense joy and fulfillment in the work you do. You know, when I think of all of the qualities that really impress me in high performers, consistency and longevity are two at the top of that list. You know, when I, when I hear of somebody that's been at the top of their field for not just years, but for decades, right. You know, in basketball, whether it's a LeBron James or, you know, in football, a Tom Brady, uh, in the corporate world, you, you look at somebody like Warren Buffett, who's I believe in his nineties and is still just as relevant today as he's ever been. That really, really is, is impressive to me. So I was trying to figure out what prevents people from sustaining excellence and performance and productivity for long periods of time? And what prevents people from loving their work every bit as much in year 10 or 20 or 30 that they did in year one? And mm -hmm. I came to the conclusion it was it was three things. Uh, it was stress, stagnation, and burnout. Um, so that's really the focal point of sustain your game. If you can learn to manage stress, avoid stagnation, and beat burnout, then you've at least got the recipe for having performed, you know, high performance uh, for long, sustainable periods of time. If I could summarize a bit about some of what you're laying down here is that from the from high performers and for all of us, we know what to do. We know what we need to do. But there's a difference between knowing it and then actually doing it, taking taking the action that's necessary. If that's true, Alan, if that is a yes, how do we step into action? What do you think? And I will assert that that is true. Um, you know, at least it's my truth. Uh, that my there, truth. Is a, there is a gap between knowing and doing. And I call that the performance gap. Um, it, it's so funny. So we, going back to the fact that I was kind of raised in the 80s and the 90s, and they always had these PSAs that would come on TV and it would say knowledge is power. And it's not that that's incorrect, but I find it incomplete because knowledge in and of itself is not powerful. In fact, in my opinion, knowledge in and of itself is useless. It's the application of knowledge is where we derive the power. It's actually taking what it is that you learn in a book. And when you apply it to your life, that's where you actually reap some benefits. You know, you, you can't see it now because it's on the other side of the camera, but I have two pretty large bookshelves with tons of books that I've read and some books that are in the on deck circle that I will read, you know, reading a book and then not making any changes to your behavior, your mindset, your decision-making or your life is basically the same as never reading the book. I mean, right. you're not going to reap any benefit from it. So it's all in the application and that, that we all have a series of gaps between what we know we should do to become the person we're trying to become 
and what we actually do. And, you know, one of the, the most visceral examples I can use is if I were to poll every single one of your listeners and ask them to write down a list of the healthiest foods that they know of, I know that they'd come up with a pretty robust list. And many yeah. of them would write down some of the same foods. If I asked every one of your listeners to tell me how many hours of sleep they should get every night, they would all shout out a number immediately. And most of them would shout out the same number. And then if I asked your listeners, can you kind of etch out um, a, a weekly workout program or a weekly fitness program or just how you should keep your body active? Um, you don't have to submit it to men's or women's health, but just roughly how many days a week should you do something, uh, how long each time, and what are some examples of things you should do? I have zero doubt that every single one of your listeners would be able to do those three things brilliantly. Yes. But then the proof is if I were to sit down with them individually and ask them, you know, are these the foods that you've eaten today? Is that the amount of sleep that you got last night? And when was the last time you did one of these workouts? we would start to see some gaps. We would start to see some people that know what they should do for their own physical well-being, but they aren't doing it. And I don't use that as an example to, to call anyone out. I, I certainly don't say it to shame or guilt anybody. I only say it to highlight the fact that in most cases, we know what to do. We're just not doing it. In the spirit of transparency and vulnerability, the physical wellness and the fitness side has always come very natural to me because I've always identified as an athlete. So mm -hmm. I have eaten clean and gotten adequate sleep and worked out consistently for my entire life. That one is easier for me than maybe for some other people. But if you were to look at my financial well-being for the first 40 years of my life, I made some really poor financial decisions. I got myself into a few pickles financially, and I definitely did not exercise the discipline that I knew I was capable of when it came to my financial situation. Now, I'm very thankful that over the last few years, I've been able to kind of course correct and I'm yeah. on a much better path now. But I'm only saying that because even when I was making poor financial decisions, it wasn't because I didn't know better. I simply wasn't doing better. In fact, when I hired a financial coach, a, a, a wealth advisor to help me, every single thing he was telling me to do to course correct were things I already knew that I should have been doing. He just mm -hmm. held me accountable and held me to a standard to make sure that I would start to do them. And it's part of the human condition. So You're if right. anyone listening, if you have some performance gaps, don't feel bad, don't feel shameful or feel guilt. Be proud of the fact that you're aware of it now and you can start to make some changes. Well, that's, that's a, Alan, thank you for sharing that. Look, everybody, everyone's everyone's got these performance gaps. We all do. And I know for me, here's what I need. I need, and I do. I, I I know myself so much. I'll let myself down between the know knowing versus the doing. I I will let myself down all the time. So I do need. I, I have an accountability partner, Alan, for um, for exercise, a personal trainer. But part of the reason why I pay good money for that is that because I don't want to let him down, I'll go to the gym. But that's what I need to do in order to to do it. Um, same thing with finances. I, I work with a financial planner and yep. she helps me stay accountable and to do the things that I know I won't do myself. And so if you're listening to this, wherever you're at, hit the reset button. Uh, no shame in this. And just think about this performance gap that Alan, Alan is laying out here. We've all got them. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm so glad that you shared that. The first step to improvement in any area of your life is awareness because you will never improve something you're unaware of. 
and you'll never fix something you're oblivious to. And that awareness is a huge first step. And it's one that I don't want folks to gloss over because it takes courage and vulnerability and, and, and honesty to look yourself in the mirror and say, I could be better in this area of my life. I'm going to give folks a real quick three-step process for improving a, a, any behavior or habit. And this is how we start to close the gap between what we know and what we do. The very first step is I just want you to pick one singular behavior or, or one singular thing that you do um, to change. I don't want you to try to change multiple things at once. Don't clean out your entire pantry, hire a nutritionist, buy a Peloton bike and, and get a year subscription to uh, you know the, uh, uh, the local yoga studio. Just pick one thing. Say every single morning, I'm going to go for a brisk walk for 30 minutes. Um, it's been proven through research that as human beings, when we have singular focus, we get a much better return. Uh, there was a gentleman named John Berardi, <clears throat> excuse me, who started a company called Precision Nutrition, and he did an expansive study, and he found that when folks tried to change one singular behavior at a time, they usually had a success rate of around 85, wow. percent, which is really good. Then in the second group, where he had folks try to change two behaviors at the same time, so they kind of split their attention, their rate of success dropped down to 40 percent. So less than half just by, by diverting their attention in two. And then in the third group that tried to change three behaviors at the same time, their percentage of success dropped down to about four or 5%. Unbelievable. So you go from 85% to about 5% just by, by splitting your focus into three as opposed to, to one. Step number two is make a commitment to yourself to do that thing, or depending on what it is, not do that thing for 66 straight days. Um, the research is kind of all over the place when it comes to habit forming, but the best research that I've seen says it takes about 66 days for the average habit for you to start to groove a new behavior. It's just a hair over two months, which means it's challenging enough to make it a stretch, to make it kind of difficult, but it's also realistic and it's doable. You know, if I were to tell you that in order to change a habit, you need to do this every day for the next six years, no. you'd most likely give up before you even started because yeah. it just sounds too overwhelming. I wouldn't start. So 66 days is kind of that sweet spot that I think is doable, but challenging. Mm -hmm. And I'm old school. I like to print out an old paper calendar and take a big red Sharpie. And every day I do the thing that I say I'm going to do, let's say go for a 30 minute brisk walk. I put a big red X on the day on that calendar. Feels and I good. tell you what. There, there are very few things in this world as satisfying as putting that big X on and starting to see a chain of red X's accumulate. It's a really satisfying feeling. And then to your point, which you, you said with so much insight and beauty, you need to, to keep the spotlight of accountability on yourself. And you do that by either recruiting or hiring accountability partners to hold you to what you said you were going to do. Now, this could be in the form of paying a financial advisor or a personal fitness trainer, or it could simply be telling your spouse, your adult children, a couple of coworkers, and somebody from your church, hey, I've, I've promised myself that for the next two months, I'm going to go for a brisk walk. Will you please check in with me every day to ask me if I did it? Nice. Will you just send me a quick text message and ask me, where did I go for my walk? How long did I walk? Did I listen to a podcast? Did I do it on the treadmill or did I do outside? Like, just check in with me. And it's just a quick text message just to hold me accountable. And Boy. it has been my experience. If you have a singular focus and you pick one, you look in the mirror and you commit to yourself to getting 66 red X's 
and you get people that that love you, care about you, and want to see you happy, hold you accountable, you got a great chance at making that habit stick and changing that behavior. And then the beautiful part is at the end of the 66 days, you just start that process again. And, and, And we're never done. We're always under construction and we're always works in progress. So now roughly every two months, you're going to be adding a positive habit or removing a negative habit, you know, within a year's time, if someone were to commit to this in 2023, they will almost be a different human being by the end of that calendar year, because they will have added three or four positive habits and maybe removed one or two that they would lead completely different lives. Okay, Alan, I love this. And when, if I think about the, the portfolio of things in my life that are most important, in fact, those who are listening in, I invite you to do the same exercise with me. Ready? Physical mental, financial, spiritual, career, relationships. Just a quick mental scan there. I've got, I've got a performance gap that I would like to be able to address in each and every one of those. I'm not at that world-class level in any one of those areas. And I will tell you, it's very easy to have negative self-talk or shame come in. And I, a message to everyone. Uh, don't go there. Some of the most damaging things we can do to ourselves is when we look at the goals that we are not reaching or the performance gap and we turn that into shame. That can really impact our, our mindset and then our behaviors. And let's not do that this year. What Alan is laying out here is something really simple that we can do. But Alan, it is simple, but it is not easy, is it? But none of this is easy. Even the formula that I just gave you is basic, but it is not easy to do. You'll still have trouble having singular focus because you'll want to change multiple things at once. Even when you promise yourself you're going to do it for 66 straight days on the 13th day when it's raining and it's windy outside and you don't feel like going for a walk, the human being in you is going to pull the covers back over your head and you're going to skip that day. Yes. And many people won't have the courage to ask the people that they love to hold them accountable because they're fearful that they'll let them down. So Mm -hmm. even though it's basic, None of this is easy, but if you're willing to do the hard work, you're willing to do the heavy lifting on the front end, you can absolutely change your behaviors. I love that's probably the best description I've heard, though, of how to change your life in 66 day increments. I mean, your life is different, your life will be different. And everyone listening, think of that what your life might look like at the end, well, this time next year, just by doing what Alan laid out there. Really, really powerful. Alan, what what would be the best way to stay in touch with you and all the cool things that you're doing? How, how should we follow you? Well, the main hub is my website, which is alansteinjr.com. And that has information on my, my keynote programs and workshops. So if anyone listening feels like I could add value to your retreat, to your, your all hands meeting, your sales kickoff or anything you do professionally, it'd be my honor to serve. Um, and that's allensteinjr.com. Um, I'm very accessible on social media. I'm at Allenstein Jr. Uh, on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and uh, Instagram. So shoot me a DM if you've got any questions or if you've got something you want to share. And then of course, I've got the books, uh, Raise Your Game and Sustain Your Game, which can easily be found on Amazon or Audible or wherever you get your books. And uh, would love to keep the dialogue going. So yes, anyone listening, if any of this resonated, um, please shoot me a DM and, and we can keep the conversation flowing. We are, you're talking to the vast I Dare You podcast audience. Give us your I Dare You challenge for us. If we want to change our life and to, to and have a, have a better life, what advice, what challenge would you have for us? So I've, I've mentioned a couple of times I'm 46 years old. I have a crystal clear vision of the man I want to be 20 years from now the 66-year-old Alan. Now, I 
fully acknowledge that time is not promised, tomorrow is not guaranteed, and there's no no promise or guarantee that I'll live to the age of 66, but I take very good care of myself. So barring something unforeseen and uncontrollable, I don't see why I won't. Right. So without getting too granular, I want the 66-year-old Alan to be physically, mentally, and emotionally fit. I want the 66-year-old Alan to have a strong, deep connection with his children, his family, his friend, and his clients. And I want the 66-year-old Alan to be doing work he considers meaningful and in service of other people, making a contribution to the world. So that's that's the man that I'm striving to become. So every single decision I make in my life at present, uh, whether large or small, from what I'm going to eat for lunch to who I follow on Instagram to what I watch on Netflix, I ask myself, is making this decision taking me closer to being that guy or is it taking me further away? And every single day of my life, I try to accrue as many decisions as possible that take me closer to being that guy. Now, I'm not aiming for perfection. And spoiler alert, I'm not batting a thousand. Uh, (laughs) But if most of the decisions that I can make over the course of a day take me closer to becoming that guy, then if I'm around 20 years from now, I don't want anyone to be surprised that that's the man I will have become. But here's the beautiful part. I'm not postponing any of those results because I'm making the decisions in real time. And I certainly hope this doesn't sound like it's lacking humility because it's coming from a place of graciousness and gratefulness. But right now at 46, I am physically, mentally, and emotionally fit. I do have a strong, deep connection with my children, family, friends, and clients. And I am doing work currently that I believe is in service of others and is making a contribution. So I'm reaping the benefits in real time because that's when I'm making the decisions. But I'm also laying the bricks to create the foundation that that's the person I'm going to be because I'm I'm basically building my future by the decisions I make in the present. And the last thought that I'll leave you with, because I know that was a mouthful, the recalibration I use every single night is in essence, I ask myself, I say, Alan, you just traded 24 hours of your life for the progress that you made today. Are you happy with that trade? And if the answer is yes, then I get a very restful, peaceful night's sleep. On the rare occasion that the answer is no, it wasn't my best day. I wasn't my best self. I didn't said some things that weren't the best reflection of who I believe I can be. I give myself some grace and some compassion. I forgive myself because I'm human and I'm fallible and I'm flawed. And I allow myself to move to the next play. And I still get a restful night's sleep because I know I got another shot at this thing tomorrow. It's good. I, I love that. Uh, move to the next play. And also thinking of yourself 20 years from now, what do you want that to be? Sounds like a bit of a North Star there as well. And then letting your habits and your decisions feed into that. Alan, thank you so much for being on this episode and for for giving us these insights. Just fascinating and the perfect time of year to do so. I appreciate your authenticity and for opening yourself up so we can learn from you and that we can learn from each other. So, Alan, thanks for being here. Absolutely. My pleasure. This was fun. Thank you. Okay, that is Alan Stein Jr. What a way to start the new year, don't you think? He gave us so many things to consider and think about. And I think the takeaway for me is what is that one thing? What's that one new habit I'm going to be focusing on? Not 10 things, because that is, we just learned from Alan, that's a recipe for failure. No, let, let's now just focus on the one thing and really embrace these 66 days. And just imagine by having a series of these 66 days, what your life is going to look like one year from today. Really exciting. Make sure you stay in touch with Alan on social media. Also, stay in touch with me uh, on Instagram at I Dare You Pod. There you're going to get exclusive insight onto this podcast and 
content you're not going to see anywhere else. You can also follow me on Instagram at DarrenJohnson1. You can also stay connected with me at www.idareyoupod.com. So now that you've listened to the episode, I invite you to share with family and friends. Um, This is one of those episodes that can really have a profound impact on others. So whoever you're thinking of right now, share it with them. I want to thank you for listening. 2022 was an incredible year, and I'm really excited where 2023 is going to take all of us. This is going to be our best year yet. So 2023, here we come. I'll see you next week on the I Dare You podcast.